Please take your copy of the Bible this morning and open it up to Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches. Praise God this morning for his mercy to us that we can gather together as his people to open up his word and hear from him. So let's, let's do that today. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 21 through 31. We are journeying verse by verse through the book of Galatians. So I want to encourage those in here who maybe are, are visiting with us or who haven't, had, haven't been able to be here for the whole series because of different things going on in your life that the series is available online. Each one of the previous sermons is already there. And so as we go through the text, you see how it builds, that Paul is building his case. And so today's text is very much built on what came before. So I encourage you to go listen to those sermons if you haven't already heard them. Now, as you're finding the passage, um, I'm going to share with you a little story. Back in 1973, on August 23rd of 1973, there was a, a guy by the name of Jan, I mean, sorry, John Olson. John Olson was a lifelong criminal, and on that day, he walked into a bank in Stockholm, Sweden, pulled an automatic machine gun uh, from his coat, and he began to fire off rounds into the air and proceeded to try to rob the bank. Now, the police showed up pretty quickly after he began robbing that bank, and he opened fire on them and injured a couple of the police officers. And then he took four of the bank employees hostage and barricaded himself and the employees in the bank vault and began to make demands. So a hostage situation ensued, and his first demand was that they release a friend of his from jail, a guy by the name of Clark Olifson, and uh, bring him to the bank. And so the, the police complied. They released Clark from jail, brought him to the bank, um, but uh, it didn't end the standoff situation. The robbers still had some other demands that they wanted to have met, and so what ensued was a five-day hostage situation at this bank in Stockholm, Sweden. But that's where the story gets a little bit weird. Despite repeated threats to actually kill the hostages, the hostages themselves apparently became very fond of their captors. They said they felt safe with the, those who were holding them hostage. Um, they said that the robbers even were comforting them. One of the hostages had a bad dream one of the nights, and, the, and she said that the, one of the thieves had, had comforted her, to her the next day. Uh, when police refused to give Olsen the $700,000 in cash and the blue Mustang for the getaway car that he was requesting, uh, one of the hostages actually called the police back and chastised them for being too mean over the phone. Later on another phone call, one of the hostages said, I fully trust Clark and the robber. They are very nice. The authorities eventually shot tear gas into the vault, and the robbers were, because of the tear gas, willing to finally surrender. And so the police demanded that the hostages be released first, but the hostages themselves protested and said, if we come out first, you may shoot Clark and John. So Clark and John need to come out first so that you'll keep from shooting them. And so that's what they did. And then some of the hostages even testified at the trial in favor of Clark and John. And then subsequently, after these two men were, um, were convicted of their crime, um, some of the hostages routinely visited them in jail. Now, this bizarre behavior of the hostages left a lot of people scratching their heads, and it's led to what is called today Stockholm Syndrome. 
A strange behavior that happens when people held in captivity form a strange and even illogical bond and affection with their captor. Now, as astonishing and perplexing as that story sounds, Paul is even more astonished and more perplexed with the churches in Galatia, for apparently they are suffering from a a spiritual form of Stockholm Syndrome. They have forgotten the freedom that they have in Christ, and they've become enamored with their former captor, the law. They desire to return to the very thing that held them captive to their own sin. So in this letter that we have been looking at, Paul is rebuking and admonishing these churches sternly. Not because he hates them, but because he loves them. They are dear children to him. In last week's message, we learned that Paul, on his first missionary journey, had taken ill and thus had to stop in Galatia. But God providentially used that illness as an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Galatians. And by God's grace, Paul's preaching brought many people to faith, both Jew and Gentile. And as a result, a number of churches were started and established. The Galatians embraced the gospel of grace, and their embrace of that gospel was evidence by the fact that they had love that flowed out of them and joy that flowed out of them and sacrificial service that flowed out of them. As they, and then they demonstrated that as they cared for Paul, who had become their spiritual father. This is why when word came to Paul later on, a couple of years later, when word came to him that these churches were starting to turn away to a false gospel, he reacts like a concerned parent. This turning away was happening because some Jewish converts to Christianity had come into these churches and had begun to spread false teachings. These people whom we have come to know as the Judaizers were teaching that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, but that belief in Jesus wasn't enough. They were teaching that Jesus' obedient life and sacrificial death were not sufficient to be right with God, but that one needed to add, add circumcision and add adherence to the Mosaic law. But all of this, according to Paul, was a false gospel. And if they embraced it, they would find themselves not under God's blessings and God's freedom, but under God's curses and once again under slavery. They would find themselves... Well, with a spiritual form of Stockholm Syndrome. For the law, the law could not free anyone. It could only further reveal and enslave men to sin. The law wasn't designed to emancipate, to free. Instead, the law was designed by God to point them to the only emancipator, Jesus Christ. So Paul is, he's just bewildered as to why these people want to return to slavery. Jesus has died. He had died to set the Galatians free. But the Judaizers were doing their best to convince these people that slavery to the law, slavery to the elementary principles of the world, was somehow better. So in last week's text, Paul gave an impassioned, heartfelt plea for the Galatians not to turn back to the way of slavery. And in today's passage, Paul puts an exclamation point on the, first of all, on his doctrinal argument, but then also on his call for them to move along in their freedom and not go back into slavery. And in the process of putting this exclamation point on his doctrinal argument, Paul will also flip the Judaizers' understanding of redemptive history on its head. So please stand with me now as we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Galatians 4, 
21 through 31, we stand in the honor of reading God's infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient word. Galatians 4, beginning verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And this is one of the more challenging passages of Scripture that we can come to, to try to understand what it is that Paul is communicating and how it is that he is using this Old Testament Scripture to drive home the realities of the New Covenant. So, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and help me to be faithful to the text. And Father, we pray that your spirit would have his way here in our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so, verse 1 begins, Tell me, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? So, those opening words, Paul is chastising them for their desire to go back to the law. But he asked them, do you not listen to the law? So what Paul is going to do is what he did earlier in chapter 3. He's going to make his, his case for the authentic gospel from the law itself. Specifically right now in this text, he's going to go and talk about Abraham. Now, well, he's already talked about Abraham in Galatians. Earlier we saw him talk about, Galatia, about Abraham, and then he sort of left that for a while. Now he's coming back to it again. Paul is reminding the, the Galatians then of what he's already taught, but now he's going to, to drive it home. This is the ninth mention of Abraham in this epistle. So apparently one of the Judaizers' main line of arguments was that the Gentiles could not inherit the blessings and the promises of Abraham if they were not first circumcised as Abraham was and his physical offspring were and then secondly they needed to follow the codified mosaic law given to the physical offspring of abraham the nation of israel only then could they be part of god's people only then could they be grafted in but paul exposes their faulty understanding of abraham and their faulty understanding of abraham's offspring 
First, he shows them back in chapter 3, verse 6, that Abraham was not justified, meaning he was not made right with God by circumcision and law-keeping, but by faith. So then in chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says that it is those of faith, not circumcision and law-keeping, but those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then more than that, and this is where he really begins to blow the minds of his readers. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says that the, the covenantal promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, but refers to one offspring. Not to every physical offspring of Abraham, but to one offspring, singular, who Paul says is Jesus Christ. For Jesus was the only Jew, the only offspring of Abraham, who kept the law of God perfectly. And then so to wrap it all up logically, Paul emphatically says in chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ, meaning you are united to Christ by faith, you too are Abraham's offspring, plural, heirs according to the promise. So what was promised to Christ becomes ours by faith, because our faith unites us to Christ regardless of whether we are Jew or Gentile ethnically, male or female, slave or free, and thus it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and thus sons of God, as evidenced by the Holy Spirit placed within us that cries out, Abba, Father. So Paul now is coming back to that argument, and he's going to drive it home today. What Paul wants to do, he wants to force the Galatians to figure out who they are. So in your... In your uh, points in your bulletin today, I've simply put it this way. Paul is forcing the Galatians to figure out who they are for they and we, because he's not just forcing them to think about it, he's forcing us to think about it. He, first of all, for they and we can only be one of two children. We can only be one of two children. Uh, this text is another great continuation of the theme that begins way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, namely that there are two seeds, there are two streams of humanity. And that's what we see in today's text. Paul is forcing the Galatians to figure out which, which child are you? Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now what's he talking about here? Well, he's referring back to the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar found in Genesis chapter 16 through Genesis chapter 21. And if you'll remember that story, God had chosen and called Abraham and had promised him that he would bless him and make him into a great nation. But God, God's promise seemed to be slow in coming. Abraham was getting old. And his wife Sarah was barren. Year after year they prayed, but they remained childless. And so then in Genesis chapter 16, Sarah comes up with a plan to help God out a little bit. She gives her, her slave, Hagar, an Egyptian woman, to Abraham as a wife so that she could bear him a child. And she did. Hagar conceived, and a child was born, and his name was Ishmael. But God, God needed no help. He had not forgotten his promise. So he renewed the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. After Ishmael was born, okay, Ishmael's already on the scene. God renews the promise, and in doing so, he emphatically tells Abraham that he would give him a son by the means of Sarah. But now, now they're even older. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's very, very old, well beyond childbearing years. So they could do nothing in their flesh to make this promise happen. Thus, God had to miraculously 
intervene to allow Sarah to conceive, and thus Isaac was born in Genesis chapter 21. So Ishmael was the product of natural means through man's volition, but Isaac was the product of supernatural means through God's active intervention. Paul is now going to show them that, spiritually speaking, all people fit in one of two categories. They are, they are either sons of the slave woman or sons of the free woman. They are either identified with Ishmael or Isaac. They are either children of the flesh and works, or they are children of promise and faith. Verse 23, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. The Judaizers were trying to get the Gentiles to return to a system whereby they would rely on their own deeds, on their flesh, on their own work, on their own goodness in order to be right with God. The pagans, okay, the Gentiles before they had even met the Judaizers, the pagans, they had lived this way through their own idolatrous works. They, they carved idols and they did things to try to make them closer to God. And so both the pagan Gentiles and the Jews who failed to see the purpose of the law, they lived in a manner by which they thought obedience to a certain set of things, the, the doing of things in the flesh, were sufficient to make one right with God. And both groups were trying to reconcile, by their own efforts, their relationship with God, just as Sarah was trying to bring about the promise by her own effort. Sarah tried to help God. She had her own scheme, her own plan, and by her own effort, she tried to pull off what God had promised. And that's the default position for every single person born into the world. Everybody is born into a default position whereby they think it's about me and what I have to do. All men are born as slave children, in other words, children of the flesh, trying to fix things in their own strength. All false religions reflect this in all forms of Christianity that add man-made tradition and legalistic rule-keeping are promoting a false gospel that tries to help God out, just as Sarah did. And you talk to anyone entrapped in such a false gospel, you'll find out something. You'll find out that they love it. They have spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Why? Why do people, why are they attracted to a, a system that says, hey, if you do this, this, and this, plus what Jesus did, then, then hey, you're, you're in. Why are people attracted to that? It doesn't seem to make any sense to us. It's just, it's like it doesn't seem to make any sense that these captors in Stockholm would love their cat, their, the, the people who were holding them hostage so much. Why? Because sinful man loves himself and loves the fact that he can do something. He feels good about himself. He feels good that he can add to what God's doing. In other words, he idolizes himself and he wants to serve that idol. And so it pleases him to do a, a system of religion whereby he can contribute, he can help God out. But the true gospel, and this is why it's not attractive, the true gospel destroys self causes one to fall into spiritual bankruptcy, leads one to call out in faith alone to Christ alone for salvation. And so church, we must guard against legalism. For it's, a, it's, a, it's always tempting, it's tempting to flirt with our former captors. And we must guard against it. So Paul is wanting the Galatians and wanting us to see the contrast here. Children of the flesh... Versus children of the promise. Children of the flesh are all men born in the flesh. 
as I said earlier. But children of the promise must be supernaturally birthed by the Spirit and are thus free. Children of the flesh are born in the ordinary way, in the natural way. But children of the promise are born in an extraordinary way, in a supernatural way. Children of the flesh are born by our initiative. Children of the promise are born by God's initiative. As one commentator put it, Ishmael was Abraham's son by proxy, according to the flesh. Isaac was his son by promise, according to divine grace. And so if we're born into the family of God and thus are sons of freedom, it happens because God's divine initiative. John 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A recent survey <clears throat> uncovered that 80%, 86% of evangelicals, that is people in churches who claim that they believe the gospel, 86% of evangelicals believe that if you're just good enough, you can get to heaven. When asked more specifically whether that you need to be saved with faith plus works, 50% of evangelicals said you need to be saved by faith plus works. Frankly, if you believe that, you're no longer an evangelical. For the evangel has been abandoned at that point. The evangel is the gospel. 60% of evangelicals believe the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a verse in the Bible. Which is exactly what Sarah was trying to do, right? This is nothing less than the church today doing exactly what Paul was warning the Galatians against. Turning back to slavery. You could say that, that Sarah was, at that moment of weakness, when she tried to concoct a plan to bring in God's promise, was through her own effort practicing a false religion of God helps those who help themselves. And by the way, it was Benjamin Franklin who coined that phrase. Now notice in today's text that the free children are called children of promise. You, you might have expected Paul to say that the free children were children of faith, since it's the opposite of children of flesh. But he calls the free children children of promise. This points to the means of our freedom. The, the promise, okay, the, is, is synonymous with the word of God. More specifically, the promise is the gospel. It is the new covenant in, in the gospel. And it is, spirit, it is God's spirit-wrought means to bring about new life. The Holy Spirit uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring life to a dead sinner. So we are children of the promise because the promise was preached to us. It had penetrated our heart and sprung into life. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And then in verse 25, he clarifies. He says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So yes, friends, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So the true children of God, the children of Abraham, the children of the free woman, are not primarily, or not in this sense at all, physical descendants brought about by ordinary means, but the spiritual ones brought about by supernatural means. Now, this was an irritating teaching to the Jews who put so much stock in their physical descendancy from Abraham. But John the Baptist had already warned them back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, 
do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then Jesus himself warned the Jews in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 47, that if they did not believe in him, they were not true children of Abraham, and thus they were not sons of God. Instead, they were sons of the devil. So in absolute consistency with John the Baptist and Jesus, Paul boldly says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, these words, and listen closely to them. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that it's possible. To be physically a descendant of Abraham, yet not be a true descendant of Abraham. And he's making the exact same argument in Galatians. What's the basis for this? What's the foundation that allows Paul to make this argument? Well, that's our next point. Paul is forcing the Galatians to figure out who they are, for they and we are uh, can only be one of two children, and they can only be under one of two covenants. So there's two children in the text. There's two covenants in the text. The foundation of God's relationship with mankind is always based on covenant. Covenant is God's promise to mankind, his agreement with mankind. And God's relationship with mankind is always based on covenant. And there are two covenants represented in today's text. Look at verse 24. Now this, he's referring to the story of Hagar and Sarah. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Paul says that the story of Hagar and Sarah has more meaning to it than it may first appear. He says that within the story there are shadows of two covenants. Shadows that can only be fully seen once the new covenant was instituted in Jesus Christ. Now this is a prime, prime example of why your pastors here at this church practice a redemptive historical hermeneutic, a method of interpreting the scriptures where we believe that the Old Testament is to be interpreted in the light of the new. The fuller and final revelation of Christ spoken of in Hebrews 1 verse 2 is the lens with which we look back at the Old Covenant scriptures. This is the hermeneutic Christ taught his disciples in Luke chapter 24. It's Christocentric, it's gospel-centric, it's cross-centric. So Moses, when he first recorded the historical story of Hagar and Sarah, surely could not have seen the fuller meaning that Paul was allowed to see in light of the new covenant. But at the same time, this fuller meaning of Hagar and Sarah does no violence to the original text. Rather, it fills it up with greater meaning. The shadows of the Old Testament, as, uh, as one of my discipleship groups talked about this very week, the shadows of the Old Testament are like outlines, like sketches. And the substance of the New Testament is like the color that fills in the picture. So Paul is adding color to the picture Moses first gave us. And he says that Hagar and Sarah represent two covenants. The Hagar covenant is the covenant of works under which all men are naturally born. A covenant expressed most fully in the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, which God established with Israel. It was mediated by Moses at Mount Sinai. The Sarah covenant is the covenant of grace, into which men can only be supernaturally born. A covenant foretasted in the Abrahamic covenant and fully realized in the new covenant, established with the church, mediated by Christ at Mount Calvary. Now, as I said earlier, 
covenant is the way God chooses to relate to mankind. And the covenant of works was established with Adam at the very beginning of creation. And Adam broke that covenant of works when he sinned. And thus, because Adam broke that covenant, we who are all, were born in Adam have all broken covenant with God as well. And the covenant that Israel was under was also a manifestation of that covenant of works. It says that they, the scriptures teach us that they, like Adam, failed to keep it due to their sin. Hosea 6, 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What covenant? The covenant of works. And since all men are born in Adam, as I said earlier, all men are in covenant with God and are covenant breakers before God. Because all men have the works of the law written on the heart and the conscience and know they have sinned and broken fellowship, that is broken covenant, with God. And thus all men need to be brought into a new covenant, a better covenant. Now the old covenant was conditional. It required man to work and to do in order to receive the blessings. But fallen man could not keep the conditions. But the new covenant is unconditional. It required man to simply have faith that everything is already done to receive the blessings. For Christ has kept the conditions for us. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Just as Hagar was not meant to be a wife but was meant to serve the wife. The old covenant was not meant to set one free, but was meant to serve the new covenant, which does set one free. The law serves the gospel. The shadows were meant to serve and then give way to the substance. This is what Paul is teaching. He wants them to see that to turn back would, would be a turn back to slavery, but it actually would take them to a turn back to when they were in broken covenant with God. To do so would be to ignore what God had been promising all along. Jeremiah 31, 31 is the most, one of the most important texts in the entire scripture. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. By covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So do you see what makes the new covenant so much better? What makes the new covenant so much better is that God does all the work. A covenant is only as strong as its parties. In the Old Covenant, the parties were God and man. But in the New Covenant, the parties are found within the Godhead himself. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God put Abraham into a deep sleep and performed the covenant ceremony of walking between the cut animals by himself, signifying that the covenant of grace, the New Covenant, which the Abrahamic covenant was a foretaste of, was a unilateral covenant where God would be the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. And so the covenant of grace, the new covenant, finds its footing in the covenant God made with himself. For the Father covenanted with the Son and the Spirit to choose a people from before the foundation of the world. And the Son covenanted with the Father and the Spirit to give his life for those people. And the Spirit covenanted with the Father and the Son to apply the work of the Son to those people. Ultimately, the new covenant is rooted in the unbreakable covenant within the Godhead. It is a covenant Initiated by God, 
kept by God, witnessed by God, an unbreakable covenant signed with the blood of Christ. And those of faith are united to Christ and therefore brought into that better covenant. It's a glorious thing. And thus, those that are under the covenant, the new covenant, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, which brings me to our next point and the most shocking point for some of Paul's original audience. For Paul is forcing the Galatians to figure out who they are, for they and we can only be one of two children, and thus they and we can only be under one of two covenants, and finally, we can only belong to one of two citizenships. Two children, two covenants, two citizenships. Now back in 24, verse 24, Paul had already equated Mount Sinai, that's where the law was given to Israel, after the Exodus, he'd already equated Mount Sinai with Hagar. Now that alone probably was a little bit unsettling for the Judaizers. But it was true that Hagar, when she was cast out of Abraham's household, went to live in Arabia. And Ishmael became the father of the Gentile, the Arabs. So the Judaizers might have just been thinking that Paul was simply referring to geography here. But in verse 25, Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about geography. Look at verse 25. So he repeats what he said earlier. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. But listen to what he says next. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Now this was shocking. Paul is saying that the children, the citizens of the present physical Jerusalem. And by that he's meaning all the Jews. The Jews who are still putting their hope in the law at least. What he is saying is that they were not children of Sarah. But instead, they were children of Hagar. Now, this was turning the Jews' understanding of redemptive history on its head. I can hear them saying now, wait, wait, Paul. You should know better. You're a Jew. You're a Hebrew of Hebrews. And you sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So you should know that the Jews are descended from Sarah and Isaac, not Hagar and Ishmael. But Paul says, nope, not the true Jews. For the true descendants of Sarah and Isaac are those who, like Abraham, believed God's promise by faith and put no hope in the flesh. Citizenship in the physical present Jerusalem, as Paul puts it here, is not what makes one a part of the people of God, but rather citizenship in the spiritual Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above is the spiritual Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, the substance which the present physical Jerusalem foreshadowed. And this radically redefines what it meant to be a Jew. This is why Paul can say in Romans 2, 29, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, referring to the law. For Paul, citizenship in the Israel of God no longer had anything to do with physical circumcision or ethnicity. For once Christ came on the scene, those things had served their purpose and the doors had been burst open, flung open to the nations, leading him to proclaim in Ephesians these words. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, whether you be Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Now notice in today's text that again we have the already not yet construct. For Paul says the Jerusalem above is free, not the Jerusalem to come. In other words, the new Jerusalem isn't merely a future hope 
but an eschatological reality right now. And all who are in Christ are already citizens of the Jerusalem above. But the full manifestation and completion of that Jerusalem is yet to come. So we have the already, not yet, already, Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Already, right now, you have come, but not yet, Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the city that the true children of Abraham, Jew or Gentile, are citizens of. This is the city that Abraham was looking forward to in faith that we should be looking forward to in faith as well because Hebrews 11.10 teaches us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And then in verse 16, it says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what's he referring to there? The heavenly Jerusalem, where all his people are gathered together from all the nations, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So Paul says that the Jerusalem above is our mother. It was common in Paul's day to refer to a city as a feminine entity and to its citizens as her children. But notice that Paul has now merged the idea of Sarah being our mother and Jerusalem being our mother. And Paul does that based on Isaiah chapter 54. And that's what he quotes. He says this in verse 27. For, that means Paul is grounding his argument now in scripture. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now this passage in Isaiah is prophesying about the restoration of Jerusalem after the exile. But it is alluding to Sarah. Isaiah is the only other, this is just a little bit of trivia for you. Isaiah is the only other book in the Old Testament that mentions Sarah outside of Genesis. The only book in the Old Testament that mentions Sarah is, is, is Isaiah. And I think the reason is Isaiah has these themes running throughout his book of, of children and of barrenness and of restoration and of promise and of an heir and of inheritance. And so he brings Abraham and Sarah into the discussion. Now the prophetic word here of Isaiah wasn't fully fulfilled when the Jews returned from exile. Matter of fact, even the Jews of Jesus' day didn't believe that this had been fully fulfilled. They knew it was talking about post-exilic Jerusalem. But what they saw was not what Isaiah speaks of here. Not to the degree that Isaiah. So they were still expecting a fuller fulfillment of this prophecy as well. So this prophetic word in Isaiah wasn't fulfilled when the Jews returned from exile. Instead, Paul says that the fuller realization of this prophecy happened when the suffering servant who, by the way, is spoken of in the chapter right before this one in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, when the suffering servant finished his ransoming work and brought many sons to glory. So when Christ walked out of that tomb, the barren woman, Jerusalem, gave birth. And thus all men from all races of all time who are united to Christ by faith are the fruit of Jerusalem's womb. That Isaiah 54 passage will go on, as we saw earlier in Deemer's reading, to speak of the expanding tent of God's people so as to include all the nations. So there are two citizenships. The physical present Jerusalem, a city of slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to works of the flesh. 
And then there's the spiritual Jerusalem above. A city of freedom. Freedom from sin through the work of Christ. Yes, friend, your citizenship changed when you came to Christ. In 1783, Canada became one of the first developed nations at that time to pass laws prohibiting slavery. 1783. The Canadians beat us almost by a century. And they had a law on the books that if any slave could cross the border and get into Canada, they would be declared a Canadian citizen and therefore be free. So that's what's happening. As we come to Christ, we're coming to the one who purchased us, who gave us our freedom. Our citizenship has changed the moment we've placed our faith in Christ. Philippians 2.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So it's not that we walked across the border, it's that he took us across the border. Paul has turned the Judaizers' argument on its head. He's shown that their argument is not in line with the Scriptures. He's shown that their argument doesn't flow out of redemptive history. The great irony here is that those who claim that coming under the law was necessary in order to be a true child of Abraham were actually showing that by remaining under the law, they were not true children of Abraham. And so now Paul is going to conclude this portion of Scripture with application. Two applications to be exact. And I let those be our applications as well. Galatians 4, 28. Now you, brothers, and, and by calling them brothers, he is showing that he still believes they're children of God. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Now this is a reference to Genesis 21, 9, where it is alluded to that, that Ishmael was mocking Isaac. So Paul draws from this the following conclusion. That those of the flesh will always mock and persecute those of faith. And so it is, friends. True biblical Christianity is the most mocked, hated, and persecuted religion in the world. Why? Because of what I said earlier. It's the only one true religion, the only religion that preaches that man is nothing and can do nothing but trust in God who does it all. Therefore, it's an assault on the pride of man. Man wants to take credit. Man wants to merit his salvation. Man wants to be made much of, just like our parents Adam and Eve did in the garden. And thus unregenerate man hates the gospel that teaches him that he is nothing and can do nothing to save himself. Unregenerate man hates the gospel that teaches him to put his faith outside of himself and onto Christ. I'm sure you guys can think of plenty of examples of this. You would think it's like, it's like looking at the Stockholm thing and go, I don't understand. But you would think that when people hear the gospel of freedom, that Jesus has done it all, they would say, yes, that's awesome. But they don't because in their fallen state, they want to be made much of, not Jesus. And so they hate that. Don't tell me about freedom. Don't tell me that Jesus did it all. And apparently about 50% of evangelicals feel that way. So that's one application. And it encourages us to hang in there. People will always hate the gospel. Hang in there. Stay true to the gospel. But the next application is even more important to the church. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? So now Paul's quoting Genesis 21, 10, and 12. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
Paul, by referring back to what happened to the slave woman and her son, is in no uncertain terms calling on the Galatian churches to cast out these false teachers. There is no place in the church for a different gospel. And so Paul is calling on the church, cast it out. Get rid of it. It's going to eat away at the body. It's going to kill people. It's going to enslave them. Cast it out. There is no place in the true church of God for any gospel that teaches us that man can earn his way to heaven, that man can add to the work of Christ, or that man can contribute in any way to his salvation. There is no room in the church for false gospels that are enamored with legalistic law-keeping or rule-keeping. We cannot have spiritual Stockholm Syndrome in the church. And then he finishes with verse 31. So, brothers, so he concludes here, encouraging them, as opposed to these Judaizers who are trying to, to shove this stuff into your head. So, brothers, we... We, that is those who have faith in Christ, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Don't believe these Judaizers. You're not a child of Hagar. You don't have to keep their rules in order to become a child of Sarah. Don't believe it. No, actually, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're already a child of Sarah. They're the ones, even though they refuse to realize it, they're the ones who are actually children of Hagar. So, brothers... We, this should be encouraging, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So friends, live that way. Live as people freed from your sin, freed to live according to the spirit that now resides in you and cries out, Abba, Father. And that's where we're going in Galatians 5. The question we are left with this morning is simply this. Whose child are you? You've either put your hope in yourself and in your goodness in your works, and thus you are a child of the slave woman, or you've put your hope in Christ, in his goodness, and in his finished work on Calvary, and you are a child of the free woman. So I leave you with this question this morning. Who's your mama? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is strong and powerful and penetrating. And it was what Paul put his hope in as he tried to combat the foolish, false, confused teaching of the Judaizers. He went to your word repeatedly. He goes to Genesis 16 and 21, and he goes to, to um, Isaiah 54, and he keeps taking out another blade out of the scabbard to lunge it into this false teaching. And so, God, may we be faithful to the word. May we let the word cut away our presuppositions. May we let the word cut away our false thinking. May we let the word cut away our sinful, prideful desires that make much of us. So Lord, we pray that your word would do its work today. We trust that it has and it is continuing to do it. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly now as we continue, as we close with song, as we continue to sing. Lord, we thank you. I pray there be anyone in here who has never bent the knee to Jesus Christ, but whose heart this morning is now feeling the penetration of the gospel, that you would lead them to come and talk to me or Deemer or even where they're at right there, to confess their sin, turn from their sin, and put all their hope in Jesus Christ alone. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.